Welcome. It's really good to be back home with my community, <clears throat> but also to be with the kids that, and the adults that I spent the last week with. We got back uh, at a reasonable hour yesterday, <clears throat> but I feel like I've been running at high speed ever since last Saturday. So from time to time, I might take a seat. Um, but yeah, you know, the announcements, um, we're talking about some, some of the happenings, um, some of the up-and-coming events. Um, next week, we are going to be having our Camp Sunday. So all of you campers, make sure to come back. And if you, uh, uh, if you have your Indian outfit, if you, if you wore that, because the, yeah, the camp theme was Seva. And it was in conjunction with um, the Hindustani Covenant Church from India. There's a covenant church in India. And the uh, daughter of the president, um, she came and she taught us a lot of Indian Bollywood-style dances. And um, it's an incredibly diverse camp. It was awesome. So if you have your, I'm going to be wearing my Indian tunic. If you have your um, camp shirt, please bring that next Sunday. And we're going to have a special presentation. We're going to show a bunch of videos um, and um, even have some of our kids share testimony. Um, I've asked Peter to share his testimony. Um, it was awesome. Two of our kids accepted Jesus and made a decision to become Christians. And a lot of the others, they, I, just, I got to witness them um, uh, in acts of devotion and recommitment. And it was really powerful, really powerful. Um, so that's next Sunday. The following Sunday is Woman's Sunday. And every year we celebrate um, women in, in ministry in our church and denomination. And we as a church and also as part of our denomination, we do believe that God calls and will gift and will also empower women for ministry and for leadership. We really believe that. So Woman's Sunday is actually going to be an all-woman-led service from the worship to the three, four TED speakers that we have, they're going to all be women, and um, it's, it's going to be um, a great time. So don't miss the next two Sundays. In fact, uh, invite friends. Um, invite people that you believe will really be touched by these next two services, because I think they'll be special. For today, um, I have a brief talk about apologetics, about why we believe, and I want to defend the Christian faith. In fact, I want to explain it, and we're going to conclude the series on apologetics today. If you want to hear more, if you want to hear more, you know, rationed argument for why Christianity, it just makes sense. It's not something that you walk through the doors and here's your brain, and you check it in at the brain box, and somehow we have to suspend reason and logic. Christianity is very reasonable, very logical, it makes sense. But we're going to conclude that seri this series today, and if you'd like to catch up on some of the back ones, back talks on, on uh, why we believe that will be on our podcast, you can, you can find that there. But I think today's, sense is going to today's talk is going to make sense for uh, not just for those of us that are new to the church or the faith, but also for our campers. Because you guys, did you experience something? I'm looking at you too. I'm looking at you too. Was camp special? You know? I mean... Um, mom came to pick up Zach, and the first thing I think he said was, we're going back next year. And I was like, yes, yes. Um, you guys adopted into religion. But what I want to say is it was more than just religion. I don't believe that Christianity is just a religion. If it were just a religion, then why are we here? I mean, there's so many religions in the world. What is it about Christianity that is any different? 
And so today what I'd like to talk about, and this is going to conclude the, Apolo- the Apologia apologetic series, I'm going to talk about religion versus the gospel. And I'm going to make a side-by-side comparison. So look in your bulletin and you're going to find, <clears throat> you're going to find a, a note sheet that looks like this. On the left-hand column, I'm going to talk about religion. But then I'm going to compare it on the right-hand column with gospel. The difference between religion and the gospel. And I'm not going to go like, you know, like, like uh, you know, Western linear, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right. Some of it is going to be right, left, left, right, right, left. So just kind of be aware of that. But, you know, we're going to fill in the blanks along the way um, in this brief talk. Three side-by-side comparisons comparing religion and the gospel. And I'm going to do this with the help of Paul. Not Paul, our worship leader today, who did a wonderful job. I, I always enjoy it when Paul leads worship. I really mean that. Um, but actually, Paul of the Bible, of the New Testament. Paul, if you can look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. If you have a Bible or on the inside flap of your bulletin or just look on the screen. With the help of Paul the Apostle, I'm going to make a side-by-side comparison of religion and the gospel as we begin with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read together verses 1 to 3 out loud. Um, and you've got to help me out here because my voice is beginning to go. <clears throat> That's because I've spent the whole last week going, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so now, I'm, now I have to lose my voice when I'm about to preach. Are you serious? <clears throat> it's like you scream at the top of your lungs and you're, I'm great after that. And then come Sunday, I'm like, oh, man. Verse 1, help me out. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So this is Paul speaking to his church in Ephesus, and he's talking about what it was like to become a Christian. And for those of you that have become Christians recently, or in the last even just few years of being part of this church community, the thing is, he's talking here about a before and an after. There's a very temporal sense about what Paul's saying here. So he's talking about who you were before, who you are today, and who you are going to be in the future. So that's what he's talking. He says, this is who you were formerly. You see that word, that word formerly in verse 2. That your life before might have been crazy. I heard testimonies all this week about kids who were all gangster or people who had done things, a lot of brokenness, broken families. This is who we were formerly. Now, it's interesting that Paul, he talks about who we were formerly, but he includes himself in that in verse 3. You see what he says in verse 3? We, too, were like that formerly. We, too, were formerly all living in the lusts of the flesh, indulging in this craziness. Paul is saying, I was there. I was like that. That's a surprise to me. That's a surprise to me because Paul, if you know anything about Paul, this guy was, he was the religious of the religious. He was the, he was the perfect church boy. He was the kid that you saw 
always participating in youth group. And yet here he's saying, I had, I had a crazy life too. I was living in all of my craziness. And what we're talking about here is somebody that gets it. And what he gets is that I was religious, but that didn't necessarily fix me. And I can tell you right now, and this is the first fill in the blank on the left-hand side here, religion over here, it tries to fix us. Religion, it tries to fix us. It says, hey, 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 get it together. Look at me. Stop fooling around. I told this story once. When I was in youth group, I was one of the youngest kids in youth group, and we had a, a man preaching. And ironically, actually, it, you, know, you, know, you know, we spent the whole week talking about Seva. We didn't have a youth pastor um, at that time in my church, and there was um, a man from the Wesleyan church. He was actually Indian-American, and he was preaching. And I remember being so disrespectful because I was, I was you know, I felt like I was, they were, the church was trying to get religion into me. It was trying to change me so I wouldn't have it. I was a rebel, I was, into, I was in New York, and I was into graffiti, and I was doing all this stuff that just was all kinds of, you know, I wanted to get into trouble. I didn't want to be fixed. And I remember one day leaning forward in my chair while um, the Indian pastor was, was preaching, and I was leaning forward, and I was kind of rocking like this, and somebody pushed my chair forward, and I fell flat in my face in the middle of the service, and all the kids were <laughs> looking at me. And then moments later, I got up and I walked away. I didn't want to be changed. I didn't want to be the good kid. I didn't want religion to fix me. But the thing is this, I mean, here I am today because I understood somewhere in my youth that this is not so much a religion. The gospel, the gospel is different from religion in this regard. I don't think Christianity is, is about another set of, of uh, it's, it's not about, it's not about this institutional format, this religion that we step into. The gospel, I think, is more a way of life. Early Christians, early Christians called the gospel, even before it was known as Christianity, you know what they called it? It's like you start a new church. What are we going to call this church? What are we going to name it? The early Christians called the church the way, the way. And they called themselves, even before they had the name Christian, they called themselves followers of the way. Followers of the way. Christianity, friends, the gospel is a way of life. I think it's a way of life. It's a way of life where we continually see the cross as the pattern of behavior, as the pattern of growing forward. We think it's about being fixed. I'm reformed. I'm no longer acting out. I'm a good person now. Actually, we see the cross as our way of life forward. And what does that mean? It talks about ego death. It talks about being selfless. Seva, that word that we learned about this week, it means, what does it mean? Who remembers? There you go, Charlie. Selfless service. The cross shows us selflessness. It's a life of giving. It's a way of life, Christianity is. Not only that, I, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with the man of the cross who teaches us how to live seva, selfless service. Religion, it tries to fix us. But like me, maybe you are rocking back and forth in your chair and you're saying, heck, I don't want to be fixed. And one day you fall splat on your face. And then you realize, 
what this Christianity really is about. Let's continue with verse 4. After all of this stuff, Paul talking about what we were like in the past. In the past, this is the kind of life we lived. Verse 4, he says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Listen to this in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. In this chapter, I think that one phrase in verse 5 is the heart. It's the centerpiece. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were dead. So, look here. If you wrote here, religion tries to fix us, the comparison with the gospel is this. The gospel doesn't wait for us to get fixed. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, the gospel meets us where we are. It doesn't say, get your act together and then maybe we'll accept you. The only requirement for membership in the church, universal, is being a sinner. The gospel doesn't wait for us to get fixed. It doesn't wait for us to say, get your act together. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. You know, I got to um, bear witness this week to some of our own, in fact, all of our children um, being met by the gospel. And some of them even sharing in front of the whole camp their testimonies. Some of your kids I got to see come forward with a broken shard. You know, we did this skit where we had these pots, and these pots represented ourselves, our relationships, our, you know, our, you know sense of connectedness with the world and with God and even with creation. And then one by one, we dropped the pots and the pots shattered on the floor, and the kids were, they were surprised. You're not supposed to break things. And each child got a shard. And I got to see them in the midst of their brokenness, even when dead in our transgressions. They brought their shards up to the front, and they gave their brokenness to the Lord. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, this is when the gospel meets us. We continue with verse 6, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Actually, let me back up here so that this is... Uh, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And, in verse 6, He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there's that time sense again, in the ages to come. Friends, uh, Paul started off talking about this is who we were before. And then he said this is what happens now. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, he meets us. But then he talks about the ages to come. In other words, all the way to the end all the way to the end, Christ will see you all the way through. He will seat you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus all the way to the end, to the ages to come. 
What we're talking about here is this fill in the blank and the right middle box. The gospel is this. God will see you through to the end, to the ages to come. Formerly, today, even when we're dead in our transgressions, He meets us, but He will see you all the way to the end, to the heavenly places, to heaven itself, and to the ages to come. God will see you through to the end. God will see you through to the end. What are we talking about here, guys? How many of you have been, now again, I'm, I'm talking a lot to the younger people, people here, but how many of you have been to camp one year? How many of you have been to, keep your hands up, how many of you have been here there two years? How many of you have been there three years? How many of you felt like in those three years, every year you go back to camp, but then when you come home, you kind of mess up again, or you feel like, yeah, there's one hand at least raised, two hands, three hands raised, you know, you feel four hands raised. And what is that like? You know, isn't that hard? Like you go to camp and you bring your shard forward or you make a commitment to become a Christian or you follow Jesus, but then you come back home and then you mess up. And then do you feel bad? You kind of beat yourself up. And you're like, why can't I get this thing right? Why can't I get this religion right? You know what the secret is? The secret is that you're not the one You're not the one that's making yourself better. God is. God is the one that will see you through to the end. And you feel like, yeah, but pastor, I go to camp. I come home and I fall. Have you ever ridden a motorcycle before? I haven't. But there's a saying, you're not riding if you're not falling. And if you're falling, if you're not falling, you're not riding. The Christian journey involves falling and learning from those falls. But in the end, you are not the one that's writing. God is writing. God is the one that's carrying you and will carry you through all the way to the end. Grown-ups, if you want some more meat, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. You will not back out on your faith. You'll be able to stand firm in the Christian faith all the way till the end. Do you know why? Because you're not the one that's doing it. God is the one that's actively, that's the word, actively working in you, changing you. Year after year, I've been doing this church stuff now ever since I fell off that chair, goodness, over about 30 years ago, and I'm still growing and still changing Until the end, when I have my last breath and I'm dying, who will see me through to the end? Who will make this faith actively grow? God is going to do it in you. Are you going to fall this year? Probably yes. But will camp be there for you again next year? It will. And I'm not saying lean on camp like a crutch. You have to take responsibility for your own faith. You will have to continually be um, growing, um, you know, When your mom and dad are quarreling, even for my kids, they're going to see it and they're going to be like, well, you know, we were praising God and we were experiencing so many blessings. But when you experience the brokenness in your life, you will be responsible yourself to read Scripture, to read the Psalms. That's going to give you strength. It's what gave me strength. You're going to need to learn to find your happy place because sometimes life is really hard. 
But your happy place is going to have to be in the scriptures, learning to read the Bible on your own, learning to pray to God. That's what's going to get you through. And you know, it's not a bad thing to look forward to camp because that's part of your spiritual growth. All of us, all of us as we grow forward, God will see you through to the end. This is what we think Christianity is. And this is the other half, comparing the gospel, which where God will see you through to the end. But religion, over here, religion says, I will see myself through to the end. Religion says, I will see myself through to the end. You know what you call this, friends? You call this white-knuckling. This is what you call white-knuckling. Where you're, you know, you know uh, how many of you guys did the, uh, did the rock wall at the pool? By the way, the rock wall it, it, at the bottom was not ground. It was water. So it was at the pool. So if they fell off the rock wall, they were safe. They fell into the pool. I couldn't get, I couldn't get more than halfway up. Right? But some of you guys were like, ding, you know, and you fall into the pool and you did it like, a, like I did the rock wall like three times. I got to the top and I'm like, good for you. Right? I'm like 100 pounds more heavier than you. My arms are weaker and I'm 40 years old. I, can't, I couldn't get more than, I was like, ah, and I fall into the pool. Do you think that that's what Christianity is? That Christianity is this white knuckling, I'm just clinging on to that rock wall because I don't want to fall and you're holding on no matter what. You know what Christianity is? Christianity is this feeling where you have the wind behind you and even if you're 40 years old and, you know, uh, you know, over 150 pounds, it helps you to climb up. It's the sense that someone is doing the climbing with you. Friends, the gospel will see us through to the end. Religion says, I'll see myself through to the end. I'll see myself through, the end, through to the end with white knuckles. I'll cling on and I'll make this work. You know what that's like? Let me explain. Let me give an, a grown-up metaphor now. And I've been speaking to the kids, but let me speak to the adults with something very grown up like a movie. Like the, the movie 2012. How many of you saw the movie 2012? It was a terrible movie. It was based on the Mayan apocalypse uh, uh, hysteria. You guys remember that? The world was supposed to end five years ago. Right? We're all supposed to be dead or raptured or something. But there was this whole thing that, you know, there was this theory that the Mayan calendar... It ended at 2012, so the world was supposed to come to an end. And they made this movie based on this hysteria. And the whole premise of the movie, and I'm going to spoil it for you because it's not worth watching. But the whole premise of the movie was, you know, the world's coming to an end. And what was it, John, John Cusack? John Cusack, right? John Cusack is the hero, and he's all kind of emo and stuff, you know. And he's got that 1980s thing going. And, you know... Um, he's trying to save his family, and meanwhile, there's earthquakes and tsunamis, and you see the cities, and there's this huge tidal wave that washes over the White House. And the premise is, in the, it turns out there's, there's these ships, like what was it, like seven ships or something, massive arcs, where it, they didn't tell people. It was top secret, and only like select few of the human race could get on board the ship in order to preserve the species. And then you have like this character, this government character, and like, people have, people have a right to live. People have a right to know. You know, we need to, you know, but meanwhile, they're filling up the ship, and in order to get on the ark, you needed to have one billion euros. 
it was reserved only for the richest or the most powerful, one billion, the most intelligent, in order to, you know, it's this Darwinian thing of the best of the species to preserve the species. So you had to have one billion euros in order to get on the ship, which translates to like how many U.S. dollars? It doesn't matter. It's a billion euros, right? Who's got a billion? My question is, let's say this is happening. How much do you have saved? Do you have enough saved? The flood is coming. You want to get in on the ark and you're knocking outside and you're saying, you're saying, you're saying, please let me in. Let me in on the ark. And they're saying, what merits do you have? Do you have the money? Are you, are you like Usain Bolt and you've got the genetics of a cheetah and that that's what we want to preserve the human species? Or are you like Albert Einstein? Those are the brains we want to preserve. You're like, no, I don't have any of that. I've got nothing. What merits, what rights do we have to survive, to live? What chance do you have to get on that boat? That's a biblical metaphor, friends. 2012, it's basically the story of Noah repeated. And you're knocking on the door. What do you have? The answer is quite simple. You have nothing. You have nothing. No merit to get on the boat. You're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. Nothing will get you on the... You don't have a billion euros. If you had a billion euros, nobody has a billion euros. <laughs> and you see, religion, you know what religion is? Religion is, I'm saving up, saving up, saving up to see if I can get on the boat. That's what religion is. Religion is how much can I save? How much goodness can I have? How much merit can I store up so that I can get on the ark? That's what religion is. The gospel and the Christian gospel in particular, this relationship with God, it teaches that no one has the merit to get on that boat. No one has, no one has enough saved. You can't get on that boat. In fact, every human being, every human being has a chance. Every human being can hear the gospel and be saved. The only requirement, like I said, is to be a sinner. Why does the gospel accept every person, every human being? Because in the beginning, God created us in His image in Genesis. If God created us in His image, what does that mean? That means every single human being, well, weak, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Latino, Indian, so on and so forth, able-bodied, handicapped. We had several special needs students at camp this week. Every single person is created in the image of God. That itself is merit. For God loves the world. He loves every person created in His image. And therefore, He is the one that sees us through to the end. Through the cross, we, we can make it onto the, onto the ark. Through the cross, we board the ship, not through any of our own merit. I conclude with the last passage in verse 8. And that pretty much sums what I've just said. It's, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God. It's a gift. It's by grace you've been saved. It's a gift. Not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Do you get that? No one can boast about this. No one can say, well, I actually have a billion euros saved up. No one can actually say, I'm good enough to be. No one can boast. It is by grace. We're saved not on the basis of our works. You know, the last two fill-in-the-blanks on the bottom right, the gospel takes away pride. You know what an oxymoron is? A proud Christian. Whenever you see a Christian that's kind of arrogant or kind of condemning people or telling other people that they're not living right or kind of, that, that's, that person is not living into their faith. The gospel, it takes away pride so that no one may boast and it's not as a result of works. That's humbling. But religion on this side, it makes us proud. It makes proud. If you've got religion, it can make you proud. I'm better than everybody else. If you've got gospel and you truly, listen, if you truly understand the way, we're talking about followers of the way. If you truly understand what it means to be a follower of the way, if you truly understand what it means to be in relationship with the man of the cross, there's no room, there's no pride left. There's no pride. But if you have standing in the church, if you have authority, if you get this thing called religion, it will make you proud. It makes proud. Let me read you a last story from this very book. This is the book that has accompanied us through these last seven or eight weeks in this apologetic series, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And I think it's an excellent book. But as I close today's sermon, I'm going to read to you a passage it's going to be a little bit long, but it's an interesting story. And it talks about the difference between humility that Christians should have and pride that religious people have. So friends, as I read this, listen for pride, religious pride. Listen for the religious pride. This is Tim Keller speaking. My favorite example of the trauma of grace the trauma and the trauma of grace that we're talking about here is that God saves who we will. He saves kids that come from broken backgrounds. Well, how can God save them? Well, my favorite example of the trauma of grace is depicted by Flannery O'Connor in her short story, Revelation. Flannery O'Connor was a southern woman who wrote these beautiful short stories. And she also happened to be a Christian, although her books sold like wildfire. The story begins in a doctor's office where Mrs. Turpin and her husband Claude are waiting with others for their appointments. Mrs. Turpin spends her time sizing up and feeling superior to virtually all types of people, the races, classes, body types, and temperament represented by those in the room. So you see this Mrs. Turpin is a, is a lady. She's, I read this story. She's a, she's a little bit large and she kind of sits down with her husband and she's in this waiting room waiting for her appointment in the doctor's office, and she's just kind of looking at everybody and judging them all around, all the people in this waiting room. 
In a very believable way, Flannery O'Connor depicts skillfully the smugness and the self-righteousness of Mrs. Turpin's judgmental thought as she judges all the others in a room that is, she judges everybody in a way that is uncomfortably familiar. We all do this. I do it. You're sitting in a doctor's office. We're judging people around us by the way they dress, look, and even by the color of their skin. And she begins a conversation with another woman who is there with her daughter. There's another woman there with her daughter, and her daughter's name is Mary Grace. And this is interesting. Mary Grace. Mary Grace is reading a book. And as she ta- as Mrs. Turpin, as Mrs. Turpin, the woman that's judging her, as she talks, her enormous self-satisfaction and condescension towards other begins to come out. And Mary Grace, the daughter of this other lady sitting over there, as she's listening, she says nothing, but she scowls and grimaces and stares. She gives she she mad dogs Mrs. Turpin across the room. You know what that is? You know what it means to mad dog somebody? It's just glaring. It's just staring at Mrs. Turpin. So Mary Grace, she glares. And finally, Mrs. Turpin, she shouts out and exclaims, if it's one thing, I'm grateful. And, and I'm sorry, it's not, I'm not slamming Southern, but she's supposed to be a Southern character. If it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who, I could, when I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that I'm not poor. Thank you that I'm not black. Thank you that I'm not living in the white trash suburbs. I'm sorry to say that, but that's what, that's the language that is used in Flannery O'Connor. Forgive me. Thank you that I'm not Chinese. Thank you that I'm not so on. She says this. Thank you that I'm not living in this neighborhood. Thank you that this is, thank you that I'm living a perfect suburban life. I'm living in this wonderful life. That's what she says. It's in the book. And at that very moment, Mary Grace, who's sitting there fuming and glaring at Mrs. Turpin, she explodes. And you know what she does? She takes the book that she's reading, and it's funny, the book is entitled Human Development, and she throws it at Mrs. Turpin and hits her in the eye. (laughs) And she crashes across the table and puts her fingers around Mrs. Turpin's throat, and she begins to choke her. And Mary Grace at that moment has an epileptic fit. Now, this is a nod to, to uh, Dostoevsky, I believe. And there's others in Dostoevsky's book, The Prince, who also is a Christ character. And as the others around her um, uh, take care of Mary Grace in her epilepsy, Miss, the stunned Mrs. Turpin leans over and says, what have you got to say to me? What are you trying to say? You know, her, you know she's trying to breathe and waiting for a revelation. At one level, Mrs. Turpin is asking for an apology, an apology from Mary Grace, but at another level, she begins to realize that the girl is a messenger of God's grace. Mary Grace looks up and says, right? Mary Grace, she, she comes out of her epileptic fit, and she's on, the, she's on the ground, and she looks up at Mrs. Turpin, suburban religious woman, and you know what she says? This is classic Flannery O'Connor. She says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Listen, the revelation reached its target, but Mrs. Turpin now has to change her worldview in accordance with it. She was so self-righteous, but now, having been called those, having been said, hearing that, she has to wrestle. What does this mean? And she's alone with her thoughts for the rest of the day, and she's standing out by her own hog pen. 
And then she looks up to heaven and she talks to God and says, why do you send a message like that for? She snarled at God. How am I a hog and also me both at the same time? How am I saved and from hell too? How am I both righteous and sinner at the same time? How am I a warthog from heck, but also a child of God? And she rumbles and she says, why me? Why me? It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And I break my bone, I break my back to the bone every day working and I do for the church. If you like the trash better, go get yourself some trash then. Exactly how am I like them? I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. And a final surge of fury shakes her and she cries out to God, Who do you think you are? And at that moment, the sun sets and she sees a purple streak up in the sky. And then Flannery O'Connor concludes the story. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And on this bridge, she saw a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were companies, whole companies of trash, battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. But at the end of the line was the tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. There were those who were the middle class, even good people, but they were behind this throng. They were the ones at the back of the row. The ones in the front shouting and leaping were the freaks, the trash, the poor, those who were broken. And with great dignity, <laughs> we march at the back as the freaks go in the front. And in that moment, the vision faded, the woods around her, and the invisible cricket choruses struck up. And what she heard finally were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. What a radical idea. The freaks and lunatics going to heaven before the morally upright. But Jesus said the same thing when he announced to the shocked religious leaders of his day. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So friends, if you can close your eyes, I'll conclude with this. There is no room for pride. Religion, it makes us proud like Mrs. Turpin. The gospel it helps us to realize that we too are also freaks and lunatics. It helps us to realize that we too are trash. It helps us to realize when we're truly in those dark moments, honest with ourselves, how messed up we really are. When we recognize and come face to face with our messed upness, that's when we can see, wow, even I, even I can be touched by the love of God. Lord, I pray at this moment for all of us who bring our broken shards in front of you. I pray, Lord, 
that you would help us to see that we're accepted. That you'd help us to see that we were made in your image. We are not to hate ourselves. We are not to go, we are not to feel self-pity. Because you are the one, you are the one, not we, you are the one that sees us to the end. You are the one that saves us even when we were dead in our transgressions. So Lord, come now in a quiet way. Come now, meet us, we pray. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.